Cocoons of Horror. We deviate from our reviews of classic horror films to give our take on Ridley Scott's historical drama, The Last Duel. It is the tale of three perspectives concerning an assault on a married woman and the political and personal ramifications of pursuing justice in medieval France. Though you wouldn't know it by the accents. Let's try it again without the dog noises. Without the dog noises? Well, good luck with that. You know, my brother used to jest. Um. Okay. <laughs> my brother. I my, mean, my younger brother when he moved to San Diego as a young man, about the same time you were practicing fencing. Uh, my brother was involved with this jousting community that would basically tape a big old ball of something on the end of a PVC pipe, and then they would use skateboards. Oh. They would skate by each other and try to knock each other off their skateboards with these PVC pipes. Oh, so your brother uh, enjoyed drugs. <laughs> I would imagine so. <laughs> I would imagine so. I mean, it's skateboard jousting in San Diego. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Implied there is drugs. Sounds like Sounds like a chili pepper song. <laughs> Skateboard just in San Diego. All right, so we're covering uh, the last duel, Steve. Do you have an elevator pitch for this movie? Ugly guys, bad accents, heavy plot. Okay. I was thinking something like woman married to man with mullet almost gets burned at the stake. That's not bad. Why do uh Steve, why do Americans want Frenchmen to have British accents? Yeah, I was really Interested is, was there a French accent in the movie? I love, there was. Sometimes you would hear like a French guy singing a cappella in French in the background. Ah, uh, right, right. Which I, I just give me all that. I, I want to hear a French dude singing a cappella. Why couldn't you have Gerard Depardieu play every part? <laughs> Why couldn't this be like his clumps? So, all right. So, Adam Driver's from Indiana, Matt Damon's from Boston. Quick question about Adam Driver. Is he the handsomest ugly person or is he the ugliest handsome person? Because I, I don't think there's any question that he's attractive. Well, the, you know not. why he was cast in this part, right? Because he's a, kind of a little bit horsey. He's there's a, a horsey. There's there's a big horse theme throughout the whole movie. Oh there's a it's an yeah. And they were the thinking meta- we need to find someone who's most horse like. The horse metaphors in this movie uh, made me forgive Scorsese's rat at the end of Departed. <laughs> I, in fact, I think at one point Adam Driver actually kisses a horse in this movie. It's just that's just a, it, we get the horse thing, and it felt like the horse thing kind of oh, sort of undercut some of that. Like like we're, like like we're just we're the horse metaphor away from going. Oh 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 okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's break this down. So, Matt Damon's from Boston. Adam Driver's from Indiana. Mm. They're playing Frenchmen. <laughs> Where's the British accent coming from? Why do we want to see these men with British accents? Well, I'll tell you where it's not coming from. 
Matt Damon from Boston. Because <laughs> <laughs> you didn't have to tell me Matt Damon was from Boston. I knew it the whole movie long. I will not be patronized by this squire who lies about court waiting to be fated with gift upon gift upon gift and risks nothing nothing he may acquire more property in this world find more favor eat more drink more bed more and otherwise call himself a man of arms but in this hall and any other in my company he will call me sir 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 indeed good sir enjoy your time in paris sir jean i don't know this like he, he got the old kevin costner school of accents uh, on tape or something i don't know i'm like I mean, I appreciated there were just moments where it just wasn't even going to try. But I feel like that should have, I mean, I guess because they they wrote it, it's like, oh, yeah, man, I'm definitely, I'm definitely going to be, I, I got to be Carouge, man. Maybe he thought he was in a hockey movie the whole time. <laughs> should we talk about the wigs? I think we should talk about the wigs first. There's a lot to talk about aesthetically. I think that we need to get the wigs out of the way. Okay. I have maybe seen a couple movies where I liked Ben Affleck. Right. I was not hankering to see him in a Joffrey wig. So, I mean, it's almost impossible to talk about these wigs without talking about the the, the guys wearing them, right? I mean, like, so right out the gate, midi. I, I didn't. I'll be honest. I had no idea what this movie was about, right? I just, I think, you know, all the pandemic films, if if they weren't like streaming on HBO, I didn't really like. I, I would be like, oh, yeah, that movie's out. Or, oh, you know, I, I haven't really been as in, involved and engaged. And when I see a medieval period piece starring Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, I feel like, you know, in another time, this would have been Feldman and Haim. I don't know if I can take this seriously. And then I see him in the wigs. Well, not just Feldman and Haim. It would be an older, like both of the Corys, middle-aged Corys, right? Yeah. Yeah, like a middle-aged Corey is trying to be taken seriously, and you're like, yeah, but mm, I know you're Now, would you, would you go with the Corey's middle-aged medieval period piece, but they're also vampires? Oh, yeah. I mean, any, anything that had a little bit of camp to it. And this isn't to say that, that Ben Affleck and, and Matt Damon haven't earned their dramatic chops, right? I mean, we're talking, these guys have a, you know, regardless how you feel about maybe Ben Affleck, I mean, he's at least in the, on the directorial side, put together some some uh, sure. I think he won content, for uh, right? for Argo, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and you know, Matt Damon is Jason Bourne and all that stuff, right? So their careers, there's no reason why they sh- they couldn't be in a film of this nature. But when they're in it together, yeah, that felt weird to me. Like it, I mean, and that, and and that's not like they can't do that, but it does have that like. Now that seems more of the story. And then put them in the worst hair. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, um, is this is this goofballs? This feels goofballs. I want to talk a little bit about the mullet, all right? <laughs> By all means. I feel like the mullet used to kind of be a meme. Yeah. 
And then just in the last few years, the mullet has sort of taken on a sort of alt-right symbolism. Are you familiar with this? Yes, yes. They must have known. It's not like mullets are common in, in portraiture of that period. So the mullet is anachronistic. I almost feel like they consciously are winking to an alt-right group that might be interested in a movie like this. Well, in, in, yeah, I mean, but isn't that getting to, like, I mean, we're not even getting ahead of ourselves, but, like, there's elements of the trial that are clearly, and, and while they may be steeped in historical accuracy, I think part of the intention of, of bringing them about and, and having them be as expository as it was in some of the uh, scientific beliefs of that time was to show that, hey, there are well-right-leaning senators and congressmen that, that will make these same arguments. Oh, right, today. right, right. Yeah, okay, so that that's a good point. So, Steve, I think I should explain the plot of this movie. It's actually not that complicated. It's basically about these two friends in 1386 France, and they have a long history together, and then they have a falling out over money. And then one of them gets married, and the other one rapes the guy's wife. And because of this, there's a accusation of rape, and it results in a trial by combat, so the offended party can get justice. And that's the plot of this movie. Right, and the linkage, of course, being that because there was an accusation from a woman, uh, she's tied to her husband's success in the duel because the trial by combat is kind of, what, divinely ordained or supported so that um, God's justice will Yeah, not just kind of. The, The victor of this match will prove the truth of the trial, right? Right, because because God's hand is on them. So, so much so that the woman will be proven a liar and be burned at the stake if her husband doesn't win the trial. Right. Yeah, and that and a, in in a trial that refers to to science also relies heavily on this divine like it's just a given. If you do this, uh God's justice will prevail. So in the trial they're putting Marguerite. Marguerite is the wife of the Matt Damon character, Carouge. And really, she has to go under trial and prove to a bunch of men sitting in a room that she did not have consensual sex with the Adam Driver character. Right. Legree. And they really put it to her. And a lot of the things that she's saying are talking points that we will often hear in the modern world too like well i mean he went as far as they went to say that it's scientifically factual that you can't get pregnant from uh from rape right and and because she's pregnant during the trial the accusation is that uh, surely she enjoyed it because she wouldn't be pregnant otherwise right it was either consensual out the gate or she enjoyed it and even and if she enjoyed it even if it was non-consensual her enjoyment therefore made it consensual so you think um, that the you think this is a conscious move to critique a particular political persuasion? I think it has to be. I mean, even if the story is told now, yeah. Um, and that isn't to say that the story isn't compelling at any particular time. But I mean, it wasn't. What was it, a year or two ago that there was the one? I think it was a senator that said that paraphrasing that you can't get pregnant from a rape because and i think he said something to the extent of because the body will just shut that whole thing down yeah this all sounds very scientific 
So that was the most jarring thing for me at the moment when that was said. It was like, I think if this movie gets made, say, like 10 years ago, people go, oh my gosh, what a weird time in history that they believe that. Right. But I think having that happen post that real thing that, that was said um, by a modern day politician. Yeah. I think it now the lens is over on us. Like, wow, you would think that we would have evolved, but no, clearly there's still pockets that believe that. Sure. I was talking, I was interviewing a medievalist recently and she was telling me that that was a very common belief that if, that the woman's climax is actually really important for conception. And that was true throughout the Middle Ages. So I think this conversation moves into the next question, which is, who is this movie for? Right. Again, going in there with no concept of what this was about, I was thinking, okay, here we go. Here's here's a medieval battle movie or something, right? And as it progressed and as I started to realize what it was focused in on, I felt that it was – I felt like it was supposed to catch you off guard somewhat. Like, I mean, even if you knew what it was supposed to be about, I think – I felt like the intent was to try to – show a parallel between you know sort of an antiquated grittier time and how in some ways as a society we haven't progressed as much as maybe we thought or it's an anti-french film and i think either way because <laughs> now yeah. Pepe Pew makes like a ton of sense you're like look don't cancel him let him let him be a warning that french people stink and you know they're not to be trusted all right, so it sounds like you think that this movie's a, a bit too preachy. I don't. Well, so now that's the question: is it too preachy, or is it? I guess for me, the question was: is this movie? I shouldn't say too preachy, but like, is the intent to preach? I think I think that that's probably one of its intents. So for me, this whole movie hinges on the repeated rape scene, right? So we see a rape scene twice, right? And. I'll be honest, I was really enjoying the ride right up until that scene, and it just goes on forever. Right. And then I feel like then I'm forced to watch it again. And so when, you know, the third act comes around to the rape scene, I'm thinking, oh, I don't know if I can do this. This right. Is, this is not, I, I don't want to, I don't want to see this at all. But it's kind of crucial to the movie. Right. So it's one of these movies where I think it's actually a very well-made movie. I do not think I'm going to see it again. No. But it really does hinge on this particular scene. It's based on historical testimony that she recounts, Marguerite recounts what happened to her in the courtroom. So we actually hear a transcription, paraphrased, but we actually hear a transcription of what she says happened in that room. So here I am thinking, okay, well, this is an interesting movie. Maybe this movie's for me because I'm really into history. I'd love to. And I love the interplay between testimony and plausibility and to see an event happen from three different perspectives. That's like totally up my alley, right? Sure. But then because I am into history, I want to go do some research afterwards to find out if the movie's faithful to the testimony. Well, in her testimony... She says very clearly that one man held her down while the other guy raped her. Uh, and that is not that, in either of the perspectives. That seems like, wow. This movie hinges on that scene and I think really wants to play with like the idea of 
sort of Adam Driver's miseducation through rape culture. Right. Because in the first scene, there's, you know, there's subtle differences. Like, did she kick off her shoes as she ran up the stairs? Or did the shoes fall off when she ran up the stairs? Right. Well, in her testimony, that none of this happens. She gets drug upstairs by both men, and one man holds her down. Right. So the crucial part of the movie is the one thing that they decided to change. Yeah, and so that is okay. Th- that's very helpful because one of the things I took, I found it odd. I found it interesting, but odd. And I and it was that the Adam Driver, Lecrie, uh, his take wasn't so clearly consensual, at least in the cinematic adaptation of it. And no, I thought yeah, that was his, weird. To uh, according me. to the, according to the movie, what he said was, of course, she protested, but of course, that's all part of the game, you know. Right, and the sequence is played in a way where you're like, there, there's, there's a certain playfulness on her part. There's a certain like it, it appears that maybe she's trying to allow for a certain amount of deniability, but at the same time, I'm like, I don't know that this would be his perspective. Like that, but in that both cases, she's crying. I mean, it, it's, it's right. It's kind of a bizarre choice to it, make. It feels like Adam Driver becomes more important, or Legree becomes more important than Marguerite in some respect. Like he becomes another part of this more. Like like maybe this is where the the quote preaching comes in, where it's like maybe someone can resonate with his character and say, well, hey. Now, maybe you should realize sometimes what you think you see isn't what you really see. But that wouldn't be his testimony. I just don't think he would – his test. and again, you – I don't think his testimony would, would create that amount of gray area that we we saw on screen. Mm. I think that's what threw me off. And especially because you have to see the scene twice and they weren't different enough. And, I, and because well, they weren't different yeah, enough, sure. and it I think felt that, like the lesson was different than maybe what they were trying to go for. Yeah, I think what they were trying to go for was that from a particular masculine perspective, this was really consensual. I don't think it can be read that way at all. Um, so, right, if you look at the historical. So they changed the historical narrative and didn't accomplish what they were trying to accomplish. Um, and then the second thing I think that they were doing is they were showing they, – they, they leave Marguerite's – perspective until last right right and um but then they don't get that right you know they don't show her being drug upstairs they don't show her being uh raped by two men i think it felt i mean and and this is and my first reaction when i saw this movie is like i wonder what this movie would have been like with a female director and the reason being is for number of well there's a number of reasons one is i mean to me the most poignant and arguably horrific moment of this film. I mean, obviously the rape scene, but it's the trial. The trial to me is the most like repulsive part because this is, I mean, obviously it's not only does she have to endure what she endured, but now she is basically, now she has to be the one on trial and she could be put to death. Yes. Right. On top of it. So she gets punished on top of being, you know, so it's just, it's an insane, it's an insane thing, right? So to me, that's, to me, that, that's your, your big moment. And well, and while I was moved by it, I felt like it was like, but let's, we, we got to move on to that duel. You know what I'm saying? And I'm like, I don't care about the two dudes anymore. Um, I, well, you know, I care about the duel. I, I cared about the sake. duel because I knew that if Carouge loses, she gets burned at the stake, right? Sure. 
Right, but they be- it feels like also the movie becomes a little bit more like well, what are the what are some of the sequences where some of the most attention was put? It was minor battle scenes, this duel. And I just felt, and then on top of it, it's like, well, we're going to put a little bit more emphasis on the nuance of Legree navigating maybe his own preconceived notions of rape culture. And it's like, feels like we're kind of focusing on the dudes again, right? Like, I mean, it feels mm-hmm. like here's a, here's a, here's a story, which is, is a story because of the way that women are treated and, the way society and even so-called science sort of is stacked against them, but it still feels like got it wrong. <laughs> like it, like the, it used it in a way that was like still kind yeah. of put her on, like the, the final sequence when she's there and like, basically they're all cheering him and she's just on the horse alone. It's like, there's this sense of like, uh, there's a sense, a sense of like, yeah, look, she went through all this and he's now he's still somehow mm-hmm. uh, the focus of attention. It's like, the irony is, is that the film sort of did that too. The Ridley Scott and company, maybe unknowingly, was doing that to her character by through, like you said, the uh, the changing of of the testimony to sort of tell a different story, or at least add another nuance to the to the story that maybe yeah. didn't necessarily need to be there. I wonder if they were too committed to showing the nuances of the three perspectives. Because let's just use one of the opening scenes as an example. So one of the opening scenes is Matt Damon's character, Carouge, being heroic in battle and saving Adam Driver's life. So he saves Legree's life. And then you don't find out till you know, for another hour or so that in reality, what happened was Carouge like foolishly runs into battle and Legree decides to back him up. So who saves whose life? You know, so it's in so that thing, that kind of thing's interesting to me because I think, oh, I from one man's perspective, he's heroic, from the other guy's perspective, he's heroic. Um, and so it's almost like, yeah, we're all a hero of our own narrative, right? Right, and you can almost see it in the marriage between Marguerite and Carouge. It's like he, you know, he's a strong man who takes care of this woman's life and he cares for her and whatnot, but from her perspective he's he's kind of a jerk and he can't manage his own money and so she kind of takes over management of the property and she's able to save his life so in both those cases they're kind of heroes of their own narrative but as soon as you bring that to the rape scene i just don't see how legree is a hero in anyone's narrative right Okay, maybe I can see how he believes that it was consensual. Um, but in order to do it that way, in order to make him the hero of his own narrative, which is, I think, the story that they're trying to tell, they have to alter the testimony. And maybe so. So maybe in service to the, that sort of that message that they're trying to explore, they had to fudge the details. And that's. It's, it's just a big it's just a big it's detail a big to fudge. fudge it's a yeah. big fudge yeah yeah so um th- let's talk about the act i think that for the most part adam driver is just amazing in everything he does yeah i agree and i think he was amazing in this i think that uh, lady marguerite that actress i had seen her in a couple things before i think she was really great in killing eve mm, um i don't know if you've seen that 
Yeah. I thought she was fantastic. I think in general, this was a really well-made movie. I think it was the Matt Damon thing. I think that they should have cast anyone but Matt Damon in this movie. Yeah, I mean, Matt Damon, yeah. <laughs> I just, I think he was the wrong choice. Um, and that's the thing, is like, you can be a very good actor, but not have, you, you know, and have limits to your range, right? And limits to what you could, what you can do. And I, this was this was past the limit for, in my opinion. So, okay, um, is there one tweak to this movie that you think would have improved it? <laughs> All Depardieu. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean, maybe a French person. <laughs> okay, I think. Okay, this is gonna sound weird. All right, so try it on for size. What if instead of Matt Damon? It was Christoph Waltz. Assuming he could do a French accent. Uh, it, sure he whatever can. he can do is better than what Matt Damon did. Right. He, even if he just is German. <laughs> <laughs> even if he's Austrian accent the whole time. But here's the thing. I think for that part, you need someone who can be believable as a hero of his own narrative, right? Right. But also believable as a villain in someone else's narrative. Right. And I think that Waltz could do both. Yeah, I think so. And he's not going to have a Boston accent. <laughs> yeah, no matter what. Like, that for sure is going to happen. <laughs> what do you think? Is he too old? But I, And I don't know that age necessarily matters. He I mean, might I be you younger than Damon. It's, I don't even know how old the, the guy is, to be honest. That's a good point. Yeah, I, I, I think he could be. I, I don't know that it necessarily matters when it comes to movies in this era. Right, I don't think age is as big of a deal. Uh-huh. I guess unless you just start thinking of life expectancy in general. Was there one plot device, trope, or cliche that worked for you? I mean, overall, I liked. I mean, I think to go back to what you were, you were saying about reasons you were drawn to it. I, I think. I mean, I really liked it once I got the idea that there was three different perspectives because I think that's such a. I think that's a cool way to frame a film, and I thought that. In and of itself, that was a good approach. I just don't think... I think this second story gets it wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and I think it was an opportunity there. Especially now with you saying what the, the real testimony was. Like, yeah, I feel like this was a... Like, there's a there was a better movie to be made with the actual historical, you know, information that they had. It wasn't like... Yeah. I'm like it was just right there. I really liked the um, sort of the young, amoral, giddy king. Mm. Like I've seen, I've seen that character in a lot of movies. This king, I don't know who the actor is on this. This king was just—he—he he could barely contain how excited he was about watching like a blood sport. Right. And he seemed like a teenager, which is exactly what would happen if you had a teenager king, right? This is like, right. this is exactly what we saw with King Joffrey or whatever. And historically, it was true. In fact, that king was out of the country and he made sure that the duel was postponed by a few months so that he could attend. Wow. And I think that that king, the actor who played that guy, he did a remarkable job trying to be professional, like he had this sort of his his business face on, but barely containing his giddiness. 
He's about to see someone murdered, and he just can't can't contain his excitement. So that guy made some brilliant acting choices. Steve, is this movie worse, uh, on par with, or better than a Ron Howard film? This movie is properly Howard. I was I was gonna say properly Howard. All right, so you have to explain what this is to people that don't know what properly Howard means. So, I mean, we, Anthony and I have a very complicated algorithm. Um, that would take forever for us to explain to you how it works, but essentially, it's, it's we've we've compiled every Ron Howard film, and we, you know, we, it's in our database, and and we, and you have essentially a a formula that tells you what to expect if it's a Ron Howard uh, film, right? Ron Howard films tend to be they can be high concept, but they tend to be lower ceiling than the concept. Um, yeah, they're good. A, Ron yeah, Howard movies safe, are good, safe floor, right? Safe floor, you know. Um, they're but usually not great. They're usually not bad, that bad. They're good. They're good movies. Yeah, and in many, in, or in, in some cases, you end up with something where the concept is 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 maybe too high mm-hmm. for for the Ron Howard execution, right? I mean, I think uh, I, I think you can look at a few examples of, of where you're like, well, I mean, that felt like that was good, but shouldn't that have been a little more interesting? Um, and I look at the last duel as I'm like, yeah, I could, I mean, you get here. You had this, this very intense, heavy subject matter, and it's going to be in a period, uh, that's going to require a pretty reasonable budget to pull off. And so they do a lot of that, right? Yeah. You, your set design, your effects, your horses, but then you go, but let's do this hair with these accents and let's change this really important thing. That should do it. <laughs> that and that feels that feels Howardish. Yeah, so this movie I think I think it could have been I mean it, it, there's no reason why it wasn't like like to your point, it the historical information was right there. All they had to do was use it. Yeah, I think that this movie probably will be nominated for a few Oscars, and it probably won't win. I think that's a perfect example of a Ron Howard movie. <laughs> exactly. Always nominated, almost. Well, I don't know. I don't know how many Oscars Ron Howard actually has, but uh, he won Best Picture and Best Director for A Beautiful Mind. I hated that movie. I know you did. He was nominated. For Best Picture and Best Director for Frost Nixon. Well, that was a good movie, certainly. Yeah, and, and there there you go. There's a great example of a Ron Howard movie. Frost Nixon. Good movie. Really good movie. Not a great movie. So overall, four nominations, two wins. Yeah. This movie is properly Howard. It will be nominated. It will not win. Was there a... a one to grow on moment, half the battle moment for this for you in this movie, Steve? I do, I do think. Let's so when we talked about like, is it too preachy? Is it is it only there to preach? Whatever. I think that that trial scene is 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 important. I think the trial scene was effective, right? Um, and and that was, I think, the moment too when I was like, would a woman director? I was thinking of the of the of the Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. And how almost every single cinematic adaptation of it spends 
a crazy amount of time on the the building of the monster. Right. And the, sure. the harvesting of the body parts sure. and the and the science that goes behind how yeah. we're gonna make it work. Whereas the book is like, and he built a monster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the yeah, the the and, true story is about motivations and character development and, and then consequences and then consequence. to one's Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so for me, I think that's why I love Mary Shelley's Frankenstein so much is because I read it well after I've seen how many different adaptations of of it uh, on the screen. And I go, yeah, I don't think I ever really needed that. And uh, the whole building of the monster thing. And it's it's amazing how, and and now I want to, I think Kukun's War has to cover Kenneth Branagh's (laughs) Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Um, But... I, so the, so for me, I'm like, the trial moment was like, it sort of, it, it hearkened me to, it brought me to that novel and that kind of different approach because I'm wondering if a, from, you know, maybe more of a feminist perspective, the duel, which becomes the whole center of the movie, you know, maybe, maybe that is presented differently. Mm. Um you know the same thing with maybe some of the, any of the other battle scenes. Like just just a, could that trial have been a longer, more focused part of the film? Because in many ways, that's the last duel, right? It's 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 her right. word versus a society. This is framed as a, a duel movie, right? Right. And um, both in have you know how it was advertised, how the original book put it together. It's seemingly significant because it is sort of the last legal duel in French history. So that's what draws you to the story. But it's almost incidental. This duel is almost incidental. It's the rape and the trial after the rape where all of the emotional payload is. I think you're probably right. It was almost like this movie was weighted improperly. Right. And and it's the most, and to me, like, we as, a, you know, as at least modern day Americans a duel to solve something might as well be in Star Wars, it might as well be uh, you know, in a cartoon. It's it's so beyond kind of our mm. comprehension. But the trial and the things that were being said in the trial, the fact that those do resonate today and that we do see elements of that today and that same approach is being taken. To me that was like there's your moment. That's your takeaway. That's your your that's your one to grow on. Yeah. Well, for me, my one to grow on is that if ever I need to ride a horse, I'm gonna <laughs> need a staircase. Yeah. I want a staircase to get up onto the horse. I want a staircase to get off the horse. I don't know why everyone who needs to be on horseback doesn't have a staircase. See, I'm at that age where I'm like Stairs. Oof, even that's a chore. <laughs> can, can we put an escalator next to this animal? Yeah. So I look at that and go, well, that's great for getting off the horse. But I don't know how you got me up there. <laughs> uh, I want to I throw out a detail that I learned about trial by combat. Go for it. The thing that I learned that I didn't know before that you wouldn't learn by watching Game of Thrones is that 
you were not allowed to fight someone in a trial by combat that wasn't your equal. So in this story, Carouge is a knight. He's been knighted. Mm-hmm. But Legree is only a squire. And so before they allowed this trial by combat to happen, they had to promote Legree to knighthood. So he got knighted because he was accused of rape and then challenged to a trial by combat. That's how he got knighted. That's wild. It kind of exposes the misplaced mythology around knights. Uh, right. You know, that this, you know, these are supposed to be men of honor. Here we have an, an example of someone who was knighted just so he could fight in this trial by combat. <laughs> right. So now I don't like when you see like musicians getting knighted. Now I don't feel so bad. <laughs> like Sir, Sir Sting is fine. So we could see Sting and Elton John in a trial by combat <laughs> because they're equals. In fact, I now crave that. <laughs> Steve, if people wanted to write into us, they could write into cocoonsahorror at gmail.com. That's right. I think the hardest part for them is going to be uh, spelling cocoon right the first time if you haven't done it in a while. It's okay. If people are not spelling cocoon correctly, maybe we don't need to hear from them. Well, I mean, I hear what you're saying, but uh, I'm probably, I'd say I get it wrong about one out of every seven times. Well, maybe I don't need to hear from you. That's fine. <laughs> Good night, everybody. <laughs> um, I want to give it uh, an extra C. I'd like you to have three C's, three O's, and three N's. And I don't care where you arrange them. Yeah, maybe it's like, mm, cocoon. <laughs> So the other thing that we're going to do is uh, we're going to read some Apple reviews. So if you write a review for iTunes, good, bad, ugly, whatever, we're going to read them. So you can email us directly. And we'll, and we'll take them personally for sure. Absolutely. So you can write in to cocoonsahorror at gmail.com or you can write a review on Apple iTunes and we'll read those too. But as we're just getting started out, we don't have any of those. And so we're going to ask each other questions. And hopefully this also helps folks get to know us. Right. So I came up with three questions for you, Steve. I, did you do your homework? Did you come up with three questions for me? I did. And the homework was, you know, Steve and I have known each other for over 20 years. So we know a lot about each other. The homework here was come up with three questions that represent topics that maybe we don't know about each other. So, Steve, why don't you go first? All right. Uh, Anthony. Yeah? Have you ever considered hair regrowth medication, or did you go bald gracefully and stay bald gracefully? That's a good question. That's a great question. Of course I think about <laughs> as As all bald men do, every now and again, we think about hair, you know. But I want you to know that... When I was 19 years old, I shaved my head for the first time, and I never looked back. I never like thought, you know what? This would be nice to have hair again. I did grow out my hair on a bet once, but uh, other than that, I've been bald consistently since I was a young man with hair. So I chose baldness early uh -huh. on in my life. So baldness didn't choose you. You 
Well, now we're kind of choosing each other. It's like an arranged marriage, you know? Growing into a commitment to one another, myself and my scalp, I suppose. And so, like, you, and you're keeping it, like, pretty, pretty well shaved all the way around, right? I am now, man. I got myself, I, man, they've got so many awesome skull shavers these days. If you're out there listening and you want someone to promote your skull razor, uh, <laughs> your skull clippers or whatever they're called, uh, this is the perfect podcast to do it with. So you, you keep it, you keep it skinned? I'll probably shave it to the skin once every five days, oh, and wow, then when it when I start to feel it on my pillow, I will shave mm-hmm. it again. Um, all right, my first question to you: If you had to live inside of a 1980s cartoon, mm-hmm. which would it be? Wow. So, am I in? Am I animated and in the cartoon as a character, or am I like stuck in it, like some sort of a Twilight Zone episode? No, you're you're a cartoon character in the cartoon. Oh, oh wow! But it's Boy. you. It's not like it's a middle aged oh. Steve Osborne. It's not like you get to be <laughs> Scooby Doo, right? So I'm not a transformer. I'm no. I'm you just <laughs> I'm, you're I'm, just a a middling fellow who has a budding stand up career. That's all you. Oh, are. Okay, so in, 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 yeah. <laughs> occasionally polishing glasses for some reason. I don't know. Yelling at dogs. Looking for adapters in your house. <laughs> Wrestling with COVID. Um, well, and I don't want to be in G.I. Joe or Transformers because middle-aged me is not doing anybody any good. And uh, if there's a battle to be to be a part of, I mean, the whole episode, every episode would be like, Steve hides again. Um, <laughs> okay. So <laughs> um, put me in shirt tails. I haven't thought about shirt tails <laughs> in 30 years. Because it seems like at this age, like that's the right speed for me. <laughs> kind of that, you care, know I mean? that Care Bear speed. <laughs> yeah, like even Care Bear is a little bit, a little bit high anxiety, right? <laughs> but like shirt tails, I can't remember a single episode of shirt tails where there was like danger, right? And that's kind of what I'm trying to avoid. You want to retire. Mean, sure you want a, you that, want a cartoon yeah. wherein you can retire. Yeah, I'm sure there were there was some sort of like inner conflicts that had more to do with how to be a better friend, and I could certainly offer some advice, if nothing else, serve as a cautionary tale to the shirt tails. <laughs> that's in fact that's going to be my entire cartoon to be cautionary tales. All right, your turn. Wait, is it my turn or your turn? It's my turn to ask. All right, you go for it. All right, what is your biggest regret? from high school so looking back on your yeah, high school days good. And, and and i think this and the reason why i like this question um is because i think this question varies over time right mm, yeah like the answer anyway like if we asked right outside of high school it'd be totally different i think yeah if you years, were to ask me years. like as a 19 year old what would i say versus what i would say now right right and i say and i think it i think it's gonna vary based on i mean yeah as you get older um I think as we get older, we have a better appreciation for regret. That's a good point. What what do I most regret about high school? Well, I was not into high school, Steve. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was sort of, uh, I was sort of like the ghost. They, they were pretty sure you were there, but no one's actually seen you in a while. That that was kind of <laughs> me in high school. 
You haunted Annaly High School. I I haunted. I mean, I, I my senior year, I think I had like three periods. I don't know. I might have I might have uh gotten my GED. Whoa. So just yeah, I wasn't into it. Altogether. Yeah, I wasn't into it. Like all my friends were at other schools. There was just no value to the diploma in the in the way that sort of the our boomer parents thought that there was a value to a diploma. Right. You know, we kind of had to learn in retrospect. No, actually that there's actually there's absolutely no value to high school diploma. Because you get your GED, you go to the JC, you get it in any college you want to. And I don't know if did you have any friends that did that? Went that direction? I don't think so. And it's and that seems weird to me, right? I don't I can't think of anybody that got their GED. Yeah. That we were friends with, right? Okay, so here's here's my experience of high school. Like I wasn't like I wasn't the smartest kid ever. ever. <laughs> but I was smart <laughs> okay. enough. That would have been impressive if you were. But I was smart enough to know not to take honors classes cuz that was more work. Right. I was smart enough to know that if I just cruised by it was pretty easy, and I could do the things that I wanted to do. So I really wasn't getting anything in high school. It would have been better if I had just bounced. Interesting that you say that, though, because like people talk about how high school does not set you up for the real world. But in many ways, the navigating around high school kind of does set you up. Yeah, you right? learn how to you... go through the hoops, right? Yeah, you learn. You learn how you learn how to satisfy like the political side. Right. Like, I mean, I know that I went from failing an English class to getting an A and being considered like one of the top students because I realized, Oh, it's like playing cards, right? You're not playing the cards. You're playing the people. Like, I'm like, I know what this teacher wants. Right. You learn politics. Now I understand. Right. Yeah. I understand what this teacher prefers. And so my essays are going to be tailored for that. Never read a single page of any assigned work. And mm-hmm. I was, I was getting A's towards the end because I was like, all right, now I know how this works. So, yeah, I've even told my kids. Well, I mean, I've even, like, my daughter is graduating high school. I've even had long talks with her about, you know what? You could just get your GED and you don't need to go to college. It's it's not for everyone. Uh, but, right. she, you know, she's she's very keen on that whole life experience part of it. Yeah, no, I get that. Like, I mean, we told our kids. They said, "Look, if you want, I mean, if you want to go to college, for sure, uh, we can do what we can to help and all that stuff." But at the same time, it's like there was a point where I'm like, "Look, if they're if if my son is scratching and clawing his way through high school, both academically and socially, why would it be better to go to college too?" I mean, you know, that was one of those. Hmm. Or find a you know find maybe a trade school or find a, some something that you're really or find a burnt out hockey rink that no one's using. You could right. live in and that. He did, and that worked. Yeah, certainly worked. I mean, for a while, you know, <laughs> sure. Staff infections have the. That's why. That's why we have medical insurance. <laughs> it's funny because it's true. All right. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, I think that it's your turn to ask me. No, no, no. I, it's it's not, it's my turn. I don't know why I can't get this right. We're really good at this. <laughs> All right. Uh, what was the first R-rated movie you ever watched? Beverly Hills Cop. Now, did you have to sneak it? No. Uh, when so it came out. What is that? Eighty six. Oh really? I was gonna say eighty eight. 
Um, I'm pretty sure it's 86. Actually, it might be earlier. Let's see. 84. Holy smokes. Yeah, that's right. It's part of the part of the great, arguably the greatest uh, pop culture year of my lifetime is 1984. Um, so 1984, I was eight. And uh, eight and nine. I was eight and nine. Yeah. At the same time, I was advanced. Um, I, uh, <laughs> my sister and my, so I just, this little backstory, um, in fourth grade, I have just, discovered that I have to wear glasses super upset about it so I don't I wear them in class but I don't wear them outside of class so I will I was terrible at kickball I was terrible at two touch <laughs> but I was fine at, at math and so I but I wouldn't really even wear them around in the house I would wear them sometimes if I'm watching tv but then if we were going to go out to dinner or something I just didn't like I don't know for some reason I, I thought again that, with a sort of a superman parallel with you <laughs> but somehow you're making it seem really dull Right, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> my yeah my my super alter ego is is just boring, man. And I uh, and so my my sister. I think it was I don't know what the circumstance was. But my sister comes home from work or whatever it was, and she's like, "Hey, you guys, let's go out. We're all gonna go out. We're gonna go to dinner." And my mom and my sister and I. And it was a big deal. And I was like, "Well, should I bring my glasses?" I was thinking about this, and I just left them behind. And I didn't realize what they were doing is they were surprising me to go take me to see Beverly Hills Cop at the drive-in. And supposedly my sister vetted the movie to, to make sure it wasn't too oh, too R-rated. That's nice. And, you, good, yeah, it was a good sisterly move right there. Right. And and clearly, I mean, <laughs> it's nudity, it's so many F-bombs, violence. I don't remember the nudity in, in the first the, one. There, there's a strip club uh, um, sequence. They always where... do. They always have to stick in the strip club, don't they? Yeah. So it's just funny because it's like, well, this, I mean, Beverly Hills Cop does not check the box of like soft R by any stretch, especially in 1984. And if you're eight years old. But the thing is, we get there and I didn't bring my glasses. <laughs> so my sister, who also wore glasses, Gave me hers, which were a lighter prescription than mine, so I could see okay, and she couldn't see them. Mm-hmm. But you know, she had already vetted it, and so we were sitting there in her van, one and only time I've ever been to a drive-in, and uh, and I watched Beverly Hills Cop, and I didn't get home, I didn't get to bed till one in the morning because you know, obviously, you got to go late if it's got to be dark, and there was a double feature. Just one of the guys was the movie right before it don't recommend it and then i and i remember going to school the next day fourth grade and just kept on like intentionally yawning around people so they would ask me why i was so tired like thinking that they would and they didn't but i would just offer up man i'm so tired i guess it's probably because i went to bed at like one so like going to bed at one was on a school night (laughs) in fourth grade that's that's a baller move and then to say why nobody asked but i told them anyway i would go i just go see beverly Hills cop at the drive-in. Pretty good street cred. Yeah, yeah, exactly. For third grade, right? Fourth. Fourth grade. Of course, yeah. fourth grade. Uh, now, I thought you were going to go a different direction this because I have a similar story, except for instead of Beverly Hills Cop, I was in Italy on a nude beach with my wife. <laughs> and neither of us... That were... was your first... Didn't you watch your first rated R movie? 
That, and that they were showing Beverly Hills <laughs> And you were nervous because you're in a nude beach and you're like, mm, I don't know if I should watch an R-rated movie right now. <laughs> well, here's what happened is that, so we didn't want to go to the beach where you had to pay to sit on the beach because that just seemed <laughs> wrong. So we thought, oh, that beach over there is, not, you know, no one has to pay to Ooh. be on that beach. I'll tell you right now, I don't even have to know where the story goes. You'd never go to the free nude beach. <laughs> You're gonna get what you pay for, bro. So I was wearing I was wearing my sunglasses and I had forgotten my prescription glasses at home. My sunglasses were not prescription. So it was it was all very blurry to me. And I was trying to explain to my wife that it's it's don't worry, it's fine. I can't really see anything. This is something that she continually brings up in our marriage, you know, that that was my excuse when we went to the nude beach, that I actually couldn't see anything. I mean, there's no way to, for her to know that I'm not lying. It sounds like a really, really typical lie, right? So wait, were you the one who was instigating going and she was uh, hesitant? Or? I didn't know it was a nude beach. I just didn't want to pay oh, the money. Gotcha, gotcha. I wanted to go to the free beach. It turned out when we got there, it happened to be a clothing optional beach. Honey, honey, these are not my good glasses. (laughs) So, anyway. And in many ways, that's the thing, is that even if it's true, I don't know about you, but like for me, if I don't have my glasses on, everything's blurry, which means that which might be hideous might not be so bad. Right, I didn't think about it that way. Kind of, it's kind of like my nearsightedness is the rising tide. Um, your turn. All right, final question. How old do you want to live to? Like, How old do I want to live to? Like, what age, like, do you want to be someone that's one of these old people, like, lives to 100 and beyond? Yeah. Yeah. Like, or are you like me, which is like, you take it week to week? So here's what I think. So we, uh, we had kids and we were fairly young. So my feeling is that I would like, to not see my grandkids get to be teenagers. <laughs> like I think that grandkids will be fantastic as soon as they become teenagers. Then I guess I'm done. So you're rooting for death for someone. <laughs> <laughs> All right. My question for you, Steve, what is a joke that you think is funny, but you don't think will work on stage, or it you've tried and it never has worked on stage? Um, it's my uh, first world problems joke. All right, let's see I like it. it. I've, had, I've had a lot of comics tell me that they really think it's well written. I've had one comic tell me that it was their favorite joke of mine at the time. Um, I don't think it's ever worked. Really? Uh, it's just a back of the room joke, I think. All right. Well, now we got to hear it. Um. Well, okay. So it uh, it's usually set up around the idea of of first world problems. Like there may be some discussion that sort of sets up the idea of of the phrase first world problem. And the thing is, is that look, I I live in a I'm a first world guy. Every problem <laughs> I have is a first world problem. I don't know any better. Uh, even even the problems that seem like I mean, it's one thing to sit there and say, oh, I can't find my you know adapter for my microphone. And that's a you know that would be someone would oh what a first world problem. It's like okay, and I understand the intent is 
to sit there and say, look, if you have a first world issue, then you're, you're now somehow blinded to the real world issues of people less fortunate. And I go, look, I pay first world money for uh, first world solutions. So therefore I can complain about first world problems. And honestly, I mean, like if, I mean, everything I have is a first world problem, even something legitimate. Like if I was to sit and complain to you, or at least even say, oh man, my shoulder really hurts from a tetanus shot. Mm -hmm. Most people wouldn't be like, oh, first world problem. Like, oh, yeah. They would at least have some degree of empathy or they would go, yeah, dude, I've had that before. It does hurt. Um, but that is a first world problem. Like, I mean, like imagine trying to explain that to somebody from a third world country, like a Russia spinoff, like we'll just choose like Tragicstan, for example. You're trying to explain to a Tragicstani <laughs> citizen that, you, that your shoulder hurts from a tetanus shot. And you're like, ah, my shoulder hurts from a, from a tetanus shot. And you go, they say, well, what is uh, tetanus? Oh, and it's a spot-on tragic standing impersonation, by the way. <laughs> and you go, well, tetanus, it's a, it's a disease you get when you step on, like, something like rusty metal, you know, like a nail. What is nail? <laughs> no, a nail is, it's, it's, this, it's this long, pointy piece of metal that you, you know, you, 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 you hammer into, like, wood, you know, to, you know, like, uh, like a dwelling place, you know, like, like a house. What is house? <laughs> Oh, the house is like, you know, like I said, it's a dwelling place. It's, 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 you know, it's, it's a big wooden thing. It's where your family lives. Your family lives? <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's my joke. And that doesn't work on stage, huh? I don't think I've ever seen it work on stage. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. So, if you have a question for Steve, uh, you can email that to cocoonsofhorror at gmail.com. Or you can write a review on Apple iTunes and read those too.